Welcome to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast. We have a great episode today with two very smart friends of mine, and this is a conversation that I wanted to have in this format for a reason. Um, There is so much social pressure these days to add commentary to absolutely every current event that's happening. And I think this is kind of an interesting thing. You know, social media, there's pros and cons to all of it. But it's as if we believe that posting on social media is some proof of our theological and sociopolitical positions. And it's like the response we put out there puts us in this category, like it's a tribal marker or a gang sign for which side we represent. And this really isn't true, especially when it comes to today's conversation. There's also just this environment of performance with social media, like a post, it's like a music concert attended by all these millions of people around the world. And the more they tap and like and comment, we just keep performing. And we think that these posts are sufficient to change the world. And, and they just, they really aren't. They honestly probably cause more problems than anything else. But um, we're also being affirmed by these people that don't really know much about us. So today I invited two very special people to the table because I feel like the first place that we really need to go with either celebration or outrage is with people in the flesh and blood, people that we know, people that we can hug and touch and pray or protest with that we can have conversations around a table like this today where nuance, thoughtfulness, wisdom can shape these conversations. I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak. I'm just saying that we should be slow and thoughtful about it in doing, in, you know, in doing so. And after you listen to today's episode, I'm sure you'll have comments and thoughts and questions, and we'll leave the comment sec- section open for both the podcast and for YouTube. Um, but I just want you to have these conversations with the people in your life first. And if silence seems like a better option, then I want it to be because your words were found uh, found refuge away from the applause. So I just want to put that invitation out there. And I want to introduce to you the two people that I invited to the table today, uh, who I know personally and professionally. And I think they are amazing people to be sitting or having this conversation. So the first one I want to introduce is Dr. Emily Patel. She was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska, completed her undergraduate training at UNL, and then went on to medical school at UNMC. During medical school, she married her high school sweetheart. He is also a doctor and trained in pediatric bone marrow transplants. She continued her education at UNMC and OBGYN residency, where they had their first child. She has a passion for obstetrics, specifically high risk. So then she decided to pursue fellowship in maternal fetal medicine or high risk pregnancies. She completed her fellowship at Duke University, where they had their second child. They moved back to Omaha to be near their family. She enjoys reading, spending time with her family, snuggling with her dog, and exercising. And I'm so grateful, Dr. Patel, that we get to work uh, side by side. So welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thank you for having me. And my other guest is Dr. Betsy Whedon, and she's a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist. She was born and raised in Waverly, Nebraska. I wasn't raised there, but Betsy and I actually went to high school together. Small, small world. She received her undergraduate degree in nutritional science from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Then she moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where she attended medical school and graduated from the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine. Following medical school, Dr. Whedon completed her general obstetrics and gynecology residency, as well as a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center in Oklahoma City. She is married. She's got three children, and she and her family are 
diehard Husker football fans, as are we. (laughs) They love traveling, being outdoors, attending baseball concerts. She also loves exercise and spending time with her family and friends. Dr. Whedon, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you both have incredible uh, bios, uh, very smart people who went to school for a really long time. (laughs) Um, For anybody that's listening that might not know me, we may have some new people listening um, uh, just to this podcast. I'm board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist, have completed a residency in integrative medicine, and uh, born and raised here in Nebraska, and that's where I practice as a general OBGYN. So my two colleagues went on to do specialized training in their areas. So Dr. Patel, let's start with you. Can you just explain to people again what maternal fetal medicine is and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, maternal fetal medicine is uh, specializing in high-risk pregnancies. So I take care of pregnant women in states where they may have a complication related to themselves or a complication related to the fetus. So really we're looking at women, for example, that have diabetes or hypertension or heart disease. Um, An example of fetal conditions that might land you in my office would be fetal anomalies, uh, genetic condition syndromes um, to do with the fetus. And so any of those types of things could end up having you at my uh, doorstep. And that's what I have trained to do. And that's what I did my specialty training specifically in. Awesome. And Dr. Whedon, can you explain to people as a reproductive endocrinologist what you do? Sure. Um, So although the title is reproductive endocrinology, the majority of what I do is infertility medicine specifically. Uh, It is just as Dr. Patel did an additional fellowship training after general OBGYN as we all are. Um, a three years duration that specializes in hormones related to women's health and reproduction. Uh, with regards to the infertility side of things, that is the bulk of my practice and most reproductive endocrinologists out there. Um, and specifically what we do that is independent of general OBGYN is IVF or in vitro fertilization. With that comes a lot of other treatments, um, lower level, for example, insemination therapy, something we do commonly in our office. We serve a lot of different patient populations, um, although one in eight couples are affected by infertility, um, and many of them are in our office. We also take care of a lot of other populations, such as same-sex couples, um, people pursuing single parenthood, genetic diseases, just like Dr. Patel sees that are affecting families. Um, we do IVF in many cases for those families as well to stop a disease in its tracks that is otherwise inherited. So it is a pretty incredible uh, avenue of reproductive medicine um, and pretty specialized as well. So after OBGYN residency, there are subspecialty training tracks. Dr. Patel went into maternal fetal medicine. Dr. Whedon went into reproductive endocrinology. There are other specialties of OBGYN that deal with uh, gynecologic cancers, urogynecology, um, and there is one called family planning that deals with pregnancy termination and family planning in general and contraception and provide really important services for a lot of people in this country. Um, we don't have that fellowship here in Nebraska, but I had a colleague you know, pursue that track. And when I actually went into residency, I didn't even know that was a, a subspecialty you know, that uh, that's provided. So We want to talk today about the current state of affairs in obstetrics and gynecology because what, you know, has become kind of this political charade and circus affects the people that all three of us take care of on a day-to-day basis and and may impact the future of, of medicine and how we take care of patients. And that's really what we want to talk about today so that we can, so that we can continue to do our jobs the best 
because we care about patient outcomes. That's literally why we went into medicine. We all have children too. We're all moms. So, you know, we've, we've experienced pregnancy in our lifetime. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Roe v. Wade and really just abortions in America, uh, because on January 22nd of 1973 is when the first initial decision was made by our Supreme Court, a 7-2 decision in favor of Jane Roe, holding that women in the U.S. have a fundamental right to choose whether to have abortions without excessive government restriction, which was striking down basically a Texas ban as unconstitutional. Um, If you pull the opinion pieces, there's arguments for it with some of the Supreme Court justices, and there's arguments against it. Um, Dr. Patel, can you give us a little bit of insight, you know, about who accesses these services in America, you know, statistically, like what are, what role does this play in women's health? Yeah. So, um, abortion is accessed by the spectrum of women in our country. And I, I think it's important to recognize the fact that, you know, when people talk about things like elective abortions or, Hey, we don't want people to use this for birth control. I think it's really important to recognize that women aren't seeking abortions because they want them, um, that there is a good reason behind everybody who chooses that pathway. And the reality is that we should respect people's right to privacy when it comes to that. And that's really where Roe v. Wade began in uh, 1973 was that the court felt that that was their right to privacy to be able to make that decision um, to have an abortion. And um, that the justices acknowledged that being forced to continue a pregnancy would put people at risk for mental health, um, physical health, uh, financial burdens, and social stigmatization. And so that's where that started. And I think that we need to recognize that and move forward with that same thought process. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, one of the most difficult questions and the three of us could have completely different answers based on our own personal beliefs. But a lot of this is resolving this question about when life begins, because that is where a lot of the uh, religious, personal, moral, ethical energy and fuel seems to, to really lie. Um, We've all been trained in our field, our respective disciplines. Um, but like I said, we all have a personal philosophy and theology, and I don't think any of us would be able to arrive at some consensus, uh, even not today. Um, but I, you know, totally agree with what Dr. Patel is saying is is none of these women that I've ever come across in my entire practice have ever wanted to be in this situation. Um, and with Roe v. Wade, you know, the question is, what is the constitutional protection? What is the overturning now? You know, what does that mean for us and our patients? Dr. Whedon, um, what is the discussion in the reproductive endocrinology world with, with the overturning of this? I mean, you work in a world where literally you create embryos, you know, you, you create life. We absolutely, I mean, could not be more pro-family, um, in our, division and therefore the protection of the ability to proceed with IVF is very important. But I do think it also um, really is important to say kind of before I tackle that, uh, that the overturning of Roe v. Wade, while obviously with respect to abortion care, that's the primary uh, thing that is impacted. It is 
in great way a um, not only threat to privacy with regards to patients and being able to make their own decisions, but just fracturing the decision-making team so far um, beyond what any of us can even fathom, what was previously a decision between the doctor and the patient, um, and that was protected by the Supreme Court, um, is now at the state level, which in many things in politics, and I am not a politician and nor do I ever desire to be one, many would advocate that state level is better for various things. You can have more control. This particular issue, by fracturing that decision-making power to the state level and then to the districts and then to the senators and legislators, I mean, simple math, you've taken a decision that's between a doctor and a patient, and now you fractured it into a ton, a ton of tiny little pieces. And like you mentioned, Dr. Seaman, the philosophy about when life begins could be different for every person. And, and that's why this is not a philosoph- this is not a political issue, right? Um, it's a healthcare issue. And so although what I'm going to speak about with regards to what I do in IVF, I think it's so important that everyone who's listening today, um, although you may be uncomfortable with this discussion because you personally would never have an abortion or do you want anyone to, um, this isn't really about that. Um, it is, but it's also about protecting every woman's ability to make a decision for herself. Um, and when you're the one on the other side of the door with your doctor, you really don't want to be met with a, well, these are our options here. You have to travel for mm-hmm. and whether or not you can do that. So even though in my day-to-day work, I don't have that discussion a lot, but I'll tell you, unfortunately, patients in my office are affected by genetic issues that develop after they get pregnant. I can't prevent every single last birth defect chromosome problem. Um And so a lot of our patients who have highly desired pregnancies, I shouldn't say a lot, but many, it exists, this conversation. They may make it to Dr. Patel's office and then something else is realized. So protecting that right um, for our patients, even though it would seem illogical that my pro-family patients are needing abortion services, I want to make sure that that's available for them here in the state. With regards to IVF, um, and this has really gained some traction for us, you know, one of the bills, and you may be going to address this, Dr. Seaman, but proposed in Nebraska earlier this year, um, the legislative bill 933, identified life at fertilization. Um, and and the, you may hear personhood bills. This is kind of along that same track. By identifying life as defined at fertilization, it cuts the legs off from us from a standpoint of being able to give standard of care in vitro fertilization technology as, as a therapy because we do create embryos in our laboratory by fertilizing an egg with sperm. It then grows in our lab and allows us to help families that otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to be parents, be parents. And so this legislature with regards to legislative bill, with regards to what I can do is terrifying um, for doctors like myself, not only for IVF, but just to give care at all. I mean, this is my my job. It's my livelihood. If, if we can't do this in a state like Nebraska, you quickly may lose really, you know, specified or specialized doctors in reproductive medicine, which also includes reproductive surgery. So there's just a lot of facets that I think were unrecognized with regards to the impact of terminology um, and making broad sweeping bans. But the flip side of that is, is okay, well, we're not going to be broad sweeping. Let's put all these exemptions it's impossible. I mean, Dr. Patel can tell you that, Dr. Seaman. I mean, you can take every single color on the color wheel and 
there are still scenarios that you're going to find that are not not defined. Yeah, I'm sure um, each year of Dr. Patel's career, you've probably I mean, encountered a situation where you're like, we've never seen this before. And so that's why it's just so hard. I mean, it, it's so hard. This is not a political thing. It shouldn't be. But obviously, we're here to discuss that. So that's yeah. a long-winded answer. But So basically, with the overturning on a you know, a federal level, no federal protection, essentially, you know, now you're, you're turning it over to the states. And I think that's really, you know, the big question now, depending on where you live, will determine what you have access to. And as Dr. Whedon was saying, you know, we have patients and, and I'm, we're going to talk about probably a lot of examples today of things that we've encountered. And I'm just, you know, throwing this out there. I've had a patient who's had a baby with an anomaly that is not going to survive. And, in the state of Nebraska, a lot of that means referring across state lines. I mean, when you think about the a family having to load up, drive a car, go somewhere to a provider they've never met before, these are really, really emotionally intricate situations. And so to, to just have 50 different states with 50 different sets of rules not only could mean different access for our patients, but as providers, you know, handcuffing providers, it's crazy. When we start getting into some of these, you guys, they're talking about criminal. It's across the board, actually, when you look at the history of abortion laws and regulations, it's usually criminalizing the doctor. There's usually not any legal ramifications for a patient. It's all on the providers, which is really scary as a provider to think that, you know, we're just trying to save people's lives and we're trying to give people families and quality lives and what we would want, you know, if we were on the other side of it. And so that's, that's the the scary part of the collateral that can happen with these types of things. Um, Dr. Patel, um, when I looked at a lot of the history of abortion laws, it's interesting, you know, back in the 1800s were some of the earliest kind of, you know, reports, the state of Connecticut being the first to kind of outlaw abortion uh, prior to Roe v. Wade. And initially, before the advent of ultrasound and all this amazing technology, they used this word quickening as kind of like the, the cutoff for like when it could or couldn't happen. Can you talk about pregnancy? First of all, tell people what quickening is. And then with the current kind of bans and restrictions, first trimester, because I think a lot of the elective abortion, you know, people like to throw up pictures of dismembered fetuses and babies and uh, you know, kind of use that as as the visual of of what abortion care really is. Can you talk about that a little bit for people so that they understand that? Yeah. So uh, quickening is when a woman first feels movement during a pregnancy. So before we had ultrasound technology, um, that was the best way that people could define when that pregnancy may be potentially viable. But as we know, in obstetrics, um, quickening can happen anywhere between about 16 and 22 weeks, depending on the person, the pregnancy, um, where the placenta is, things like that. And we know now, of course, very well that that is a point in the pregnancy at which the fetus would not be viable outside of the uterus. Um, And so... That starts getting into questions about viability. You mentioned, um, you know, just to kind of discuss a little bit about maybe the trimesters of pregnancy or when do most abortions occur. Most people seek abortions in the first trimester, um, oftentimes under eight to 10 weeks is typically when the vast majority of them are going to occur as in the first trimester. 
Um, when we start talking about, you know, those, those really, um, uh, you know, graphic visuals that people will throw up, those are typically second trimester. And uh, those are much more rare scenarios. And they're oftentimes the scenarios that I may encounter in my practice where a woman comes in and maybe has a serious life-threatening condition like pre early preeclampsia, or there is a serious fetal congenital anomaly or genetic condition that's not compatible with life, and they may choose to have an abortion at that point in the pregnancy. It's not as common, but it does occur. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of think about all of these things in the context of what is really happening in the medical scenario. Um, you know, when Roe v. Wade came down, the court divided the pregnancies basically into trimesters, first, second, third trimester. They left that third trimester open to states for to make decisions about, you know, basically what to do in terms of abortion regulations in the third trimester. Um, but first and second, they really said that, you know, especially in the second trimester, states need to be able to give patients access to care if they need it in the second trimester, which is really basically where we're at um, prior to Roe v. being overturned. In Nebraska, um, abortions could occur up to um, 22 completed weeks gestation, so technically 21 and 6. And that was a point at which the state had defined um, that the fetus could potentially survive outside of the womb and or outside of the uterus. And the reality around that is very nuanced. Um, so I can talk a little bit about sort of how we define viability and um, where these numbers come from. So in our country, a perfectly healthy pregnancy, perfectly healthy fetus born at 22 to 23 weeks would be the very absolute earliest that a neonatologist or, or a person who takes care of newborns um, that are premature would be able to potentially resuscitate a baby, meaning put breathing tubes down, put you know IV lines in, things like that. And that's sheerly because the fact that below that, Number one, lungs aren't mature enough to be able to be ventilated. And number two, they oftentimes don't have instruments available um, and medical equipment available for, for humans that small. Um, so it's multifaceted. But that is in kind of the perfect scenario. A lot of people I take care of are not in that perfect scenario. They might have a baby that is extremely small and too small for medical technology to be able to provide that resuscitation. There might be genetic conditions or fetal anomalies that complicate that scenario. And so when we're talking about viability, it's not black and white. And there is a lot of other things that play into whether or not a baby may be able to survive outside the uterus. And so that's a little bit of kind of that historical perspective on um, abortion laws, why some were put into place and for what reasons, and sort of where we are at in Nebraska right now. Yeah, so I was trying to find numbers on 
you know, how many pregnancies, you know, are affected by these things. And we'll get into some of those more specifically, but, and I don't know if you have different numbers, Dr. Patel. In 2017, there was 862,320 abortions provided in clinical settings in the United States. In our state of Nebraska, where all three of us practice, there was only 2,020 abortions provided in the, in the state of Nebraska. Um, and, um, those were not all Nebraska residents. Some patients traveled from other states uh, uh, to come here. But that's basically 0.2% of abortions that are performed in the U.S. or are, are in our state. And I believe the statistic that I saw was about 70% of them were performed with, with medication, not with a procedure. Is that kind of consistent with what you've seen? Yes. Yes, it is. And, um, yeah, it has some other... That's from Nebraska. And this is all online. This is something that anybody can find um, that these stats are readily available to the public on the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services website. Um, But 97% of Nebraska counties do not have any clinics that provide abortions. It is already very restricted in our state. Um, and there's a lot of other things that I could talk about in terms of the restrictions, but it's very highly restricted already. Um, and the other thing that I found on that site was, um, you can find a percentage of total abortions based on the reason. I mean, I think a lot of people are just Mm -hmm. asking these questions or why is this happening? Why do people do this? Um, what are the reasons? And, um, there were some non, there were some patients that declined to answer that question, but of the ones that did over 50% related to contraception. And I think that that's an important thing to note um, because in places where contraception is readily available and free and easily accessible, there have been studies that have time and time again shown that abortion rates go down mm-hmm. if we provide that service. Yeah. So if we can provide good, reliable contraception for free we can reduce the number of people that are needing abortions. And a lot of that was related to contraception failure. So people who were doing what they needed to do Mm -hmm. to protect themselves against pregnancy, but unfortunately it's not always 100%. And we know that as obstetricians and gynecologists, but um, I think it's really important for listeners to understand that if we want to truly reduce that risk, of people having abortions and seeking those services, this is one excellent proven way that we can do that. Um, so again, this is stuff that you can find online at the um, on Health and Human Services website um, for for your reference. To piggyback on that, just one thought as I'm sitting across the table watching you both talk, and this is just incredible information. Something you both kind of touched on first trimester. And then Dr. Seaman, you just mentioned medication for for production of abortion. Um, medication as a method to induce an abortion must, it, the ones that are available, it requires it to be a very early decision. Um, and as Dr. Patel mentioned, majority of patients seeking abortion seek it not only in the first trimester, but typically that kind of eight to 10 weeks. When we restrict access to abortion, when there are a limited number of providers, as you just stated, 97% of uh, counties here in Nebraska don't actually have access to abortion care. That then forces patients that need it, for whatever the reason, to go elsewhere, which takes time. Time, resources, 
then we are automatically now pushing those abortions that could have otherwise been treated medically in a lower risk environment out further, further beyond in the pregnancy. Um, or unfortunately marginalizing patients that can't travel, whether it's because they don't have a car, gas money. I mean, let's talk about gas money, like to other places. So although I think in the minds of some restricting abortion is, is a very ethically appropriate thing and, that is not necessarily the, the position any of us are taking, but I can I can in some ways see the the goal in mind with that, and that it's founded in what every person individually feels is right. Unfortunately, what is a downside or consequence of that that they may not realize is that by being so restrictive or more restrictive than we already are, we're pushing pregnancies out further so that they are no longer eligible for medical termination requiring surgery, requiring travel, requiring resources, time away from work, families. So I think it's just really important to highlight that the points that you both made come together to be super impactful. Well, and I think even though the vast majority happened in the first trimester, I've run into this clinically in my own practice. In the second trimester with a patient that has a baby with severe abnormalities, we're in Nebraska, the cutoff is, like Dr. Patel said, 21 and 6, and maybe they didn't come till 21 and 3 for an anatomy scan. And now you're trying to counsel this patient and say, oh, and by the way, you're going to need to make your decision in the next 48 hours because otherwise we're going to have to send you, you know, elsewhere. Like these are really, really hard conversations to have as a provider. Um, and it's, it's going to be different state by state. That's what we're, I mean, that's what we're dealing with now. So I want to Come back to Nebraska, and you, you guys, we're just talking about Nebraska because that's where we practice, and now we're at a point where I can't look up all 50 states and give you all 50 different, you know, uh, discussions. But um, in the state of Nebraska, um, we don't have any constitutional protection. Our governor, Governor Ricketts, has recently said that he would support banning abortion in our state um, with no protection for rape or incest. Um but that he would acknowledge something called double effect, which is basically where a medical provider would determine that, you know, a mother's life could be at risk and that there, there would be medical indications. Um, and has said that IVF would not be affected, but we're going to, we'll dive into that in a minute because I think the language really matters. Um, they attempted to uh, pass something in February that failed. It was LB 933, which we may see come back in the state of Nebraska but essentially, this bill would prohibit both medical and chemical abortions starting at fertilization. A physician that knowingly violates the bill's provisions would be subject to a Class 2A felony charge, which, which would carry a maximum penalty of 20 years imprisonment. And a woman who attempts or has an abortion would not be liable under the bill. Um, this is essentially what we call a like, trigger law. And there are states that already had these in place, which meant with the overturning of Roe v. Wade that automatically that state essentially enacted what I just described to you right now. Um, Dr. Patel, let's start with you first. Can you just talk about if that were to have been passed in February, the implications to our jobs and what we do? Because just so everybody is clear, nobody at this table provides elective terminations. None of the three of us do. But from a medical perspective, we do. I mean, there are situations. Yeah. And if taking out a fallopian tube with a baby with a heartbeat in it is that, then yes, I do perform that. Mm -hmm. And based on this, it sounds like I could be charged with a class two, a felony. <laughs> right, right. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's terrifying because, uh, I mean, obviously we went into medicine and, and do what we do because we want to help people. Uh, and we're, I mean, we've given a lot of our lives to our education and to um, taking care of our patients and providing the best care that we can. And never could I imagine a scenario in which I was providing standard of care, medical um, care for somebody but be risking going to jail for that. And that is terrifying. And to the people who think that this is, that we are exaggerating this or that um, these cases don't happen that often, um, et cetera, it's, it's going to take one patient um, for somebody to be prosecuted and spend time in jail for, again, providing standard of care medicine. What I mean when I say that is that our national overarching organizations like American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and my society, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, state that providing counseling regarding abortion care in certain circumstances is a standard of care. And I can give an example. Um, and this is this is a real life case. This is um, without, you know, a lot of details, but uh, a pregnant person at 18 weeks, um, so before the baby is able to survive on the outside, uh, their water breaks. So their bag of water that surrounds the fetus ruptures, and um, now there's no fluid around the baby. That fluid is beneficial to help the lungs mature for the fetus, and it's also protective for the mother to prevent them from getting an infection. And so when that happens, we talk to patients about options to do what we call expectant management, meaning that we, we kind of just, it's a watch and wait, give them precautions um, to look for signs of infection, things like that. Or we can deliver the baby, deliver the fetus. Um, because if we don't, some of the risks that can occur would be things like infection, sepsis, um, a hemorrhage can occur. Um, they could have scarring in their uterus that could down the road cause them problems with fertility and being able to get pregnant in the future. Um, some people can die from this because sepsis is very serious. So once we counsel a patient about all of those things, they're allowed to make that decision about what they feel is best for them. Now imagine a scenario in which you're in a state that has a you know, possible penalty of criminal prosecution for providing that abortion. That's truly what that would be if we delivered that fetus at that time. You can bet that there are going to be doctors who are going to be very scared to provide that service for fear of being criminally charged or going to jail. Um, and you know, again, people say, well, but if it's for the mother's life, but at what point have we crossed that line where we say that the mother's life is truly in danger? The woman sitting before me at that point in time has normal vital signs. They don't have any fevers. They're not infected at that moment. Is their life in immediate danger? Can I act? Or do I need to wait till they end up in the ICU? Or do I need to wait until they code? what point can I act on behalf of that patient? 
And these are real life scenarios that are happening throughout the country right now where abortion bans have already gone into place. So women will have serious consequences for these bans. I think women will die. And I think women will have serious effects down, downstream from this. Um, and their health is in danger because of it. So again, this is one example, um, as you both have mentioned, out of so many that we could talk about. Um, but I think it's a really good example of demonstrating how these bans are not clear and really don't have any place in in our offices and in our hospitals and, and making these decisions. This should not be up to politicians. Yeah, and I think the more barriers you provide, it's delaying treatment for patients. You know, I even in our own town, I go to multiple hospitals and at one institution that has religious affiliations, I have to get ethics consults even for sterilization and things like that. I mean, these are just hurdles, more hurdles for providers, more hurdles for patients. And at the end, it's the patients that are going to suffer. Um, the next bill, LB 781, uh, which has not come up yet, would require a physician to perform an ultrasound prior to an abortion for the purpose of detecting a fetal heartbeat and record the estimated gestational age of the fetus. Knowingly performing an abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected would be illegal, except in the case of a medical emergency. Under the bill, a physician who knowingly performs it after a fetal heartbeat has been detected could face a class 2A felony charge carrying maximum penalty of 20 years imprisonment. So now we've taken basically the same ban, but now we've moved it from fertilization to a heartbeat. Dr. Patel, can you tell people in embryogenesis and development of a fetus, or Dr. Whedon could weigh in too because she sees earlier pregnancies mm-hmm. on ultrasound than any of us do. Um, so maybe this would be a good one for you. I mean, when do you see heartbeats normally in the progression of a gestation? Excellent question. As you stated, I see patients a lot earlier. Um, you know, those that are in my office, they are they are testing for their pregnancy test before they've even missed their period. Five minutes pregnant. Yes. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, it's such an individual road, and I don't mean to diminish the importance of that for my patients because it's tremendous. And for them to experience that, actually, where when many of us here and, you know, the journey to parenthood is different for everyone. But with regards to fetal heartbeat, um, that is something that, and the way pregnancy is dated, Dr. Patel actually mentioned this a little bit ago, but is typically by the last menstrual period, the first day of a woman's last period. Um, and then two weeks later, she typically ovulates. That's when an egg is released. That's the opportunity for conception to occur in a spontaneous conception. Two weeks later is typically when a woman would have a positive pregnancy test or their first missed period. Um, at that point, a gestational age, as we conventionally label pregnancy, is four weeks. So that fetus is technically about two weeks old, but by conventional dating, that's a four-week gestation because we date from the first day of the last period. So when we're talking about all of these things, it's kind of also important to recognize there's a little bit of nuance and um and language specifics with regards to that. So what I'm about to share with you is gestational age based on the last menstrual period or including those first two weeks leading up to ovulation. So the first opportunity in my office that we can typically see heartbeat, and that's in an exactly documented pregnancy. For example, when I transfer an embryo to someone's uterus, I can 
tell you about down to the minute when they conceived because I put the embryo there. Um, obviously, there's a little bit of uh, variability with regards to implantation and et cetera, but is about the latest part of the fifth week, five weeks, six days, six week is the very earliest we can see that flicker on ultrasound. Um, and as Dr. Patel can share as well with regards to embryo- embryogenesis and development of cardiac structures, <clears throat> that is not a formed heartbeat or a formed heart, I should say. We see a heartbeat. We see electrical signal pulsation happening within this itty bitty chunky grain of rice is all the bigger that little flicker is on the screen. Um, most people that are conceiving on their own may not even know they're pregnant by the time that heartbeat develops, actually. My patients, we're seeing it. We anticipate it. We know it. Um, but that's why, and I think you're maybe going to talk a little bit about this, when we make a, a ban at heartbeat, it actually excludes a lot of women from even knowing they're pregnant where they could do something about it in a state that otherwise has a heartbeat law in place. So, Well, and Dr. Patel said 50% of elective terminations are contraception failure. I mean, I've, right, if you're on birth control, I've seen a patient who yeah. had an IUD and came in with a pregnancy with a heartbeat. I yeah, mean, absolutely. these are, you know, legitimate clinical situations that we encounter and you know, there's no exclusions. Here it is. And once again, Dr. Patel said, you know, you're going to have physicians that will not act out of fear of spending 20 years in jail in these situations and referring a patient, you know, to another state, how far will they have to travel? You know, what are the bans in that state? I mean, I would, I won't be able to name off all 50 states. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, that's the difficult situation. Dr. Patel, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback on that, so just to kind of make sure it's crystal clear what Dr. Whedon is saying here is that she's detecting that heartbeat in a lot of her patients because they are watching for it, they're anticipating it. We're talking about somebody who has a missed period, and within that week, they will likely start, that. that's where we would prob- probably start detecting a heartbeat, within that week after. And that means that somebody would have to recognize their missed period, get in to see a doctor, which, as we know, is yeah, not likely going to happen within <laughs> quickly within you know seven days um, before they'd be even eligible to be able to. And and by that point, they're they're going to be able to likely see that flicker um, on the ultrasound. And so again, this is this is basically just tying women's hands completely. Can you tell people, for instance, a pregnancy with genetic abnormalities or aneuploidy, mm-hmm. when would a woman typically be screened or when would be the earliest that you would know something like that yeah, was there? That's a great question um, because, again, this is going back to the cases that I'm seeing in my office. So when we talk about doing genetic testing and screening, we're typically at the very earliest doing that around about 10 weeks. Um, there are various different genetic screening tests. I won't get into the details of that. Um, but the very earliest ones we can do somewhere between about 10 and 12 weeks. And that will give us some genetic information, um, usually very limited. There are some more comprehensive tests that can be done at that point, but most people don't opt to do those really, um, uh, more definitive tests because they are invasive and can put the pregnancy at risk um, for miscarriage. And so most of the blood testing that we do for for um, genetic screening is between that 10 and 12 weeks. 
then it takes a, about seven to 10 days for that to come back. So at this point in time, we're probably upwards of 12 to 14 weeks of gestation by the time we can get some of that testing back. The most common thing that we're going to be looking at for with that testing is Down syndrome or something called trisomy 21. And then there's a couple other conditions, trisomy 13 and 18, that we can look at um, or look for that uh, are considered lethal overall. They're conditions that um, babies cannot survive long-term with. And so those are the three main conditions that we're testing for out of thousands. Um, and so it's a very limited screen. That's when we can usually get that information. The next opportunity if people don't want to do any genetic testing or screening would be at an anatomy ultrasound. Dr. Seaman, you mentioned that, alluded to that earlier. And that anatomy ultrasound is technically like a genetic screening ultrasound. We are looking at the fetus head to toe. We're looking for um, congenital anomalies, heart abnormalities. Um, we're looking for markers of syndromes or genetic conditions at those ultrasounds. And those are typically done somewhere between about 18 and 21 weeks, really depending on um, the patient, our ability to scan them, things like that, or when their provider refers them. But again, then at that point in time, we're really approaching a point at which abortion is not likely to be as accessible to them in our state because of our state limits. And so those, those are kind of the two time points in, at which we can find and detect genetic conditions or syndromes and things like that. The other thing that would concern me with this would be ectopic pregnancy or angular interstitial corneal, basically pregnancies that are not in a place where they can grow safely. Dr. Whedon, since you do IVF and that is a you know known complication that can happen and you're screening so early in these pregnancies, can you explain to people um, how to, when do you know where it is and you know how do you decide if it's in a place where it shouldn't be? Because sometimes they can go to those places and have a heartbeat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, one of the first and most important things when we're talking about ectopic pregnancies is just to understand what the word ectopic means. Um, you know, many people associate ectopic with a tubal pregnancy. That's true in like 96% of cases that an ectopic is usually in the fallopian tube. You know, when the egg is released from an ovary, um, it has to be picked up by the tube. Sperm in standard conception, of course, goes up through the cervix, which access through the vagina, through the uterus out to the tube, and that's where egg and sperm meet, and that's where conception typically occurs in spontaneous conception. Um, for a myriad of reasons, that little embryo can get stuck, um, and that, that is what happens in a tubal ectopic pregnancy is, for whatever reason, it doesn't continue traveling. Um, and there are quite a few risk factors for that, which I can mention in a moment, but that is what is defined as an ectopic or a pregnancy that is outside of the proper uterine structure um, or the, the endometrium, the lining of the uterus. So in 96% of cases, that, that tube is where we would find that. Um, it is a place where an embryo cannot live, cannot survive. It's about a millimeter wide. Um, so if you can imagine, you put a, a little growing thing inside of a small space, at some point that is going to outgrow its space. Um, and so that's why ectopic pregnancies, in particular those in the fallopian tube, but anywhere, are so dangerous because at some point that ectopic is going to outgrow its space and and break through that structure. And that's where hemorrhage can happen. Hemorrhage meaning loss of massive amounts of blood, you know, ectopic pregnancy and rupture of 
is the most common cause of maternal morbidity or mortality, specifically death, in the first trimester. Um, that's huge. And so when we're talking about these bills and my ability to care for ectopic pregnancies and you know, many people may say, oh, gosh, well, there's going to be an exception for that. Let me talk about that in a moment. But it's huge. That is a huge impact. Um, and then it also, um, you know, maternal mortality overall is about 4% of maternal deaths. So the word ectopic, meaning outside of the uterus, full of tomb is the most common location, as I've mentioned. Other locations can exist, though, and that actually is an area where I spend a lot of time um, because they're quite rare. Dr. Patel and I both probably see the majority of those. Um, they can happen in the C-section scar in a woman who's had a prior C-section. Um, they can happen within the ovary. They can actually happen anywhere in the abdomen. That's called an abdominal pregnancy. Those actually get identified really late, typically, because there's no restricting space like that tube I just mentioned. So, you know, being aware that they can happen, you know, in my patient population, we're, we're looking really early. We kind of talked about that with regards to pregnancy tests and heartbeat. But there is a threshold at which I can diagnose an ectopic pregnancy. Um, and by diagnose, I mean definitively say I see a heartbeat. It is outside of the uterus, wherever it may be. That is a, a diagnosis that's definitive. I can see a heartbeat. It's outside the uterus. That's defined as an ectopic. And then my management options at the moment include surgery medication management with medicine called methotrexate or expectant management with most cases of having a heartbeat is not actually a reasonable one. Uh, even medical management typically would not be. But a lot of those patients actually present to my office. Um, number one, I should mention heartbeat is not actually as common as you'd think with ectopic pregnancies, but it happens. Right now, surgery is an option for them, short of when they're medically unstable. And that's something that you know each of us um, knows and learned very vividly uh, in our training, but you don't sleep on an ectopic, meaning they're stable until they're not. And if you just remember me talking about risk of maternal mortality or death from this, it can happen really fast. And so when I've got a patient in my office, and of course in my office, this is a pregnancy that was highly desired. I'm looking at this little teeny fetus that is in the wrong place. Number one, it cannot be moved, which is something that legislators have proposed we have no known medical that's not treatment for if it was i would do it like every time um, but it's not and so then i'm talking with my patients about well what are our options for management because this is a life-threatening condition if with these laws as you stated this most recent one i'm having to wait until she's medically unstable because there's a heartbeat that is a bad situation to be in um and I mean, I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy, not to mention massive blood loss. I mean, you can get in a sticky situation fast. And so um, heartbeat's a big deal for ectopics. Selection of treatment is a big deal for ectopics. But um, there's a whole bunch of gray area between not being pregnant and diagnosed ectopic. This is a whole section of medicine that I take care of called pregnancy of unknown location, um, which is the heavy lifting of what I do with early pregnancy complications, if you will. Um, and what I mean by that is, is those are the really confusing ones. They are hard for patients. They are hard for doctors because I've already mentioned the risk of an ectopic is so grave. If I don't know where our pregnancy is because it's too early, those little teeny cells are just growing and dividing, but maybe they're not growing and dividing normally, but they're still growing and dividing. It may not develop a heartbeat and give me a clear understanding of where it's located. And what I mean by that is it could be in the uterus, but it's not normal. So it's not going to result in a live baby, 
but it could still be in the tube because I can't see it for sure. Um, and those are another scenario of, as we've talked today, exceptions, question mark, impossible to define them all, um, but yet still very dangerous to our patients. Yeah. And the other barriers, you know, that I can foresee too, is that with the political debate surrounding abortion is, as we said, about 70% of them are performed with medications, access to things like methotrexate, yes. the prostol, mifepristone, um, are, are certainly things that could happen as well that could delay treatment for patients. And shortages of those medicines. Methotrexate is an incredibly important medicine for ectopics. It's also an incredibly important medicine for a lot of rheumatologic conditions. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis is one of them. And so, you know, we have kind of talked about this on a lot of different stages separately. And one of our, you know, we're, we're working towards gathering other Nebraska physicians that understand that this can impact of other areas of medicine. Um, you know, if you're somebody that needs methotrexate on a regular basis for your rheumatoid arthritis, well, this is important for you too. Um, access to medicines that are important for other conditions is huge. Okay. So the third bill in the Nebraska legislature, LB 1086, would establish a safety protocol to prohibit anyone but a physician from providing an abortion-inducing drug. The bill would also prohibit an abortion-inducing drug from being mailed or otherwise delivered would establish a safety protocol to prohibit anyone but a physician from providing it. The bill would prohibit abortion-inducing drugs from being um, basically sent from another state. And I'm seeing this already with what's going on. People are like, well, just send it to this pharmacy in XYZ state. Um, it would require the physician to file a report with the State Department of Health and Human Services detailing every encounter with a patient directly affected by an abortion-inducing drug including any complication they experienced. Intentional failure to file the report would be a class two misdemeanor. Um, this is an interesting one because this is basically now telehealth. So if you live in a state where you don't have services, um, if you're still a candidate for a medical <clears throat> abortion, you could do telehealth services. Now our state is looking at restricting that. Dr. Patel, mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think what's, again, really important to remember here is that we already have a lot of areas in our state that are lacking healthcare resources for the people in our state. Like legitimate um, healthcare, it, like yes. even primary care. Correct, <laughs> yes. And uh, yes, what I'm talking about here is not abortion care. I'm talking about just healthcare when you have a state that is largely rural, um, getting healthcare in rural areas can be a challenge. Um, there are specific, um, you know, incentives to bring doctors out to rural areas because it's hard to get them to come out there. And so we already face in a lot of the states that are um, going to be highly restrictive with this. There's already um, a lack of healthcare resources for people in general. And telehealth is a great way to combat that and, and, and to help people get healthcare when they may not have access to it in their small town or something like that. And so now we're already, now we're talking about restricting that as well. And um, there was a physician here in town who does bariatric surgery and she uses mesoprostol, which is one of the pills that can be used for medical abortion, she uses that in a different way to prevent gastric ulcers. That's the original usage of this medication. And she was unable to get that filled here in Nebraska right now. And we don't even have a ban in place. Um, and that was for a totally separate issue, not abortion related. 
So again, just recognizing how far reaching this can be. And on the matter of something like telehealth, how that's going to affect access just in general to healthcare in our country, especially in rural areas like we have in Nebraska. It's really important. Yeah, I'm imagining somebody that lives really, you know, rural and some of these places only have mid-level providers like a nurse practitioner or a PA. And now you're saying it has to be a medical doctor. Once again, more barriers, you know, that are going to delay treatment for patients. And once again, don't file a report. It's a class two misdemeanor, like just completely. Uh, it's, it's like, I've seen the meme around Facebook that where you send a prescription for a patient and the insurance company wants a prior authorization. They're like, let's ask the doctor. Okay. Well, I'm the one that sent the prescription. Mm -hmm. I've actually had, um, a patient with a miscarriage. So what we call a missed abortion, missed AB, um, treated expectantly medically or surgically. And if they elect for medical management, we use the same medication mesoprostol. I've had a pharmacist refuse to fill it for a patient. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, it's too bad that these things are happening. So in the state of Nebraska, basically, um, as of, as of this morning, um, I just want to go over kind of like where our laws are at. I've given you the three bills that are currently in our state, state legislature and things that could happen here, but I encourage you to look at your own state's laws and regulations and to just be informed and start having discussions with the people at your dinner table and people that you, you know, care about their opinions, because these are things that could affect your wives and your daughters, depending on where you live. And as these things are being turned over to the States, we're going to see bills coming in. And I just, I don't want you to get your ballot and then not know what you're voting yes or no to essentially. I think you just need to be really clear about about that. So in the state of Nebraska, a patient must receive state-directed counseling that includes information designed to discourage the patient from having an abortion. So literally, we're supposed to discourage it. Then you have to wait 24 hours before any service can be provided. Um, Private insurance policies that cover abortion can only be uh, covered in the case of life endangerment unless individuals purchase an optional rider at an additional cost. Uh, health plans offered in the state's health exchange under the Affordable Care Act can only cover abortion in cases of life endangerment. Once again, Dr. Patel kind of alluded to the nuance of that. How do you determine at which minute, hour, day that she's now suddenly in danger? Um, abortion is covered in insurance policies for public employees only in cases of life endangerment. The use of telemedicine to administer medication is prohibited currently in our state. The parent of a minor must consent before any abortion is provided. Public funding is available only in cases of life endangerment, rape, or incest. An abortion performed at 20 or more weeks post-fertilization or 22 weeks after the last menstrual period, only in cases of life endangerment or severely compromised health. And that law is based on the assertion um, that is not consistent with scientific evidence has been rejected by the medical community. And um, the state requires that clinics meet unnecessary and burdensome standards related to equipment, staffing, just a lot of, of, of hurdles for, for these types of providers. And the use of safe and effective commonly used methods um, are often prohibited. So that's what we're dealing with in our state. Um, just to piggyback yeah. on that, um, you mentioned, you know, insurance and, and payment for it and things like that. Um, I, again, I see the patients in scenarios where they have maybe a lethal fetal anomaly and they may have to travel out of state. Um, 
And even if they don't, even if they are able to get in in the window here in Nebraska, um, we're typically talking about somewhere in the realm of ten to fifteen thousand dollars for these procedures. So again, um, you know, when people think that these second trimester abortions are happening frequently and people are just doing this, you know, willy-nilly without thinking about it, that, that is that's not happening. That is not happening. Um, these are thousands of dollars uh, procedures that people are paying for in the most vulnerable, difficult time of their life most of the time. So, wow. Yeah, that's really that's really good insight. Things probably people don't think about. Mm-hmm. Um, the legal prosecution of physicians. Like, it's just crazy to me. And um, we could have a, a med mal person, you know, come on. But um, it's it's going to become continually burdensome for just even a regular OBGYN like myself, I think, to continue to practice the way we do, depending on how these, you know, legislative bills pan out. Um, In a time in medicine where we are seeing nurses leave medicine, doctors leave medicine, many places are understaffed, even in metropolitan areas, let alone really underserved communities. So one of the questions a lot of people were asking, because we allowed some of you to submit uh, submit things, is people are afraid that our state will lose good doctors. Do you think that that's a reasonable thing to think? Yeah, I mean, I'll, like in your specialty, yeah, for instance, yeah. for recruiting people to your practice. Um, I absolutely think that that is a risk. Um, I think a couple things to point out there from my standpoint is that, um, you know, if if we're looking at a criminal prosecution, 20 years in prison, and I have the option of going to a state that has a ban like that versus going to a state where I am free to practice under the standard of care that's been established nationally for OBGYN, you can bet that people are likely going to choose the latter more often than not. What brought me back to Nebraska is I was born and raised here. I love this state. I grew up here. I know it's a great place to raise a family, but you can bet I have considered moving because of this. So it is an incredibly scary prospect as a physician to be put in that position. I also think that this is going to change the landscape of OBGYN and training. We are less likely to get candidates to come train here in Nebraska, good quality candidates, because they're not going to get the full scope of training that is required of an OBGYN. And so again, if given the option for somebody who's going into obstetrics and gynecology, if given the option, they're likely going to choose a state in which they're going to get trained fully, completely under the standard of care. And that may not be here if one of these bans happens. So that's my perspective on how that might change the landscape here in Nebraska. And you you may have physicians, good qualified physicians, leaving the state for that reason. Dr. Whedon, for reproductive endocrinology, I mean, I'm not even, in in our community, I'm so thankful that we have two practices in our community. We have amazing uh, referral base, but the rest of Nebraska doesn't have reproductive endocrinologists. You, you and your your colleagues just opened a new clinic in, in Lincoln, which is an hour from here, which is just phenomenal. But talk to me about kind of the same the same question. 
there are six doctors that do what I do in this state. I'm one of them. That is all. Um, we will not be able to recruit to this state if these restrictive bans pass here and there's any threat of not being able to practice standard of care and fetal fertilization. Um, we, it is a serious risk to lose one or all of us if a ban like what was proposed this spring passes. Um, and I, I'm telling you guys, this it just will hurt the growth of families in Nebraska so profoundly. Um, and that's just for infertility care. I mean, the things that we've talked about that I do that aren't for infertility medicine are also profound. Myself and my partners were reproductive surgeons for young girls, young women that have reproductive tracts that are not formed normally. Um, we manage hormones for a lot of patients with polycystic ovary syndrome who are not trying to conceive. And so, I mean, I cannot do my job here if a bill like 933 passes um, here in the state. And so not only does it threaten us that are already here, but, you know, the other things that are mentioned, some of those bills are aiding and abetting with regards to other support staff, embryologists. They are incredibly important to what I do. I can't do what they do. Um, I mean, I facilitate what they do, but I can't do what they do. And so we we will lose ours here in the state. We will not be able to gain new ones. Um, and so it is a seriously slippery slope. And you mentioned, you know, the idea of protection for IVF in some of these proposed bills or bans. It's not comfortable. I mean, everything we've talked about here, even if there's, quote, protection for us, there are so many avenues of reproductive care that we care for outside of IVF proper, ectopics being a huge section of that, but just in general, women's rights and women's reproductive needs it will still impact physicians here staying or going, never being able to recruit, or I should say very limited such. So um, I'm worried a lot about it. And something Dr. Patel mentioned, training of the next generation, um, that's specific to how many trainees we can get here in Nebraska. But if you just look at this, take a few steps back, looking at OBGYN as a whole. Um, I've got two daughters and I want them to have excellent reproductive care when they decide to build families on whatever terms that means or looks like. Um, there is going to be a whole generation of OBGYNs that are not well-trained in management of early pregnancy complications in abortion care because Roe v. Wade was overturned. So what we can hope to do is, in our state especially, is try and reduce the risk of it being further restricted here and protect the ability to train the next generation of OBGYNs. Because let me tell you, if it's your sister, your mom, your daughter, you want your OBGYN well-trained. Yeah, so basically we are board certified by the American College of OBGYNs that basically decides what type of training every OBGYN should encounter to then go on to become a board certified OBGYN. So what Dr. Whedon is alluding to is that because now there are specific state restrictions, me training in Omaha, Nebraska versus training in California versus training in XYZ state, it's all going to look different. And so... When you go to your doctor in your state, they may not have trained there. They may have trained somewhere else. So just because you live in a state where those services are provided doesn't mean that that provider feels comfortable providing those, you know, that's not adequately trained. So that's the, that's the thing people have to understand is that we're, you know, we're all not going to live forever. And there's going to be a new generation of doctors that come behind us that will be taking care of our kids. And, and uh, yeah, I have three daughters too. So this is just super important to me. So um, we discussed earlier in the in the podcast about pregnancy viability, Dr. Patel kind of defining that for us. And um, one of the things that is concerning is that, you know, men, medically indicated terminations, and we've talked about ectopics, 
We talked a little bit about genetic abnormalities. You brought up one of the uh, examples of preterm premature rupture of membranes. Um, can you give the listeners, obviously, we're never going to have an exhaustive list. I mean, if you write these into these legislative bills, like we could put a lot of smart people around a table. There's always going to be something else that we can't think of. But can you talk about maybe some of the, obviously, they're not super common, but just things you encounter in your practice where mm-hmm. termination is a discussion you have with the patient. Yeah. So, uh, fetal anomalies, genetic conditions and syndromes is, uh, is a huge category. Um, and I, I don't think I need to probably break down, um, all the possibilities there, but, um, there can be, for example, you know, a fetus that is um, developing without a skull that's called anencephaly. Um, there could be congenital, you know, um, congenital heart disease that is in- incredibly serious um, or may not be able to be repaired after birth. Um, so th- again, that it's is exhaustive. There's a huge that is a huge category. But as it pertains to maternal conditions, you know, I mentioned one already, and that is that um, premature rupture of membranes, and that can happen before viability. And that is both a risk for the fetus and the mother. So that's kind of a combination scenario. Um, And then there's conditions like preeclampsia. So um, preeclampsia typically doesn't happen until the third trimester and is a condition associated with high blood pressure in pregnancy. And the blood pressure can get so serious as to cause things like stroke or seizures, um, uh, long-lasting heart abnormalities like something called a cardiomyopathy where the heart doesn't pump normally. And so it's a very serious condition. If it happens before viability, that would be a, a situation in which we would talk to a patient about we should we should consider um, an abortion in this, in this case because your life is at risk. Um, we might also have a condition where um, the mom's life may not be at immediate threat. So, for example, maybe a very early pregnancy, maybe they found out that they were pregnant um, and they have an active cancer diagnosis and they're receiving chemotherapy, which obviously a chemotherapy is a medication that uh, it, it stops cells from rapidly dividing cells from dividing. So that would affect the growing, developing fetus. So that might be a situation. I might have a mom who has kidney disease that in that moment, they're not at risk for dying, but a preg- carrying a pregnancy could put them at a high risk for a progression of their disease. It may not kill them, but maybe they would end up having kidney failure. Maybe they would end up needing a kidney transplant down the road. So again, maybe a scenario in which the mom may not immediately die but could have long-term consequences for them. So again, all of these are scenarios that we may have that discussion and say, hey, these are the risks of a pregnancy for you. Are those risks acceptable to you? Um, And only they can really decide that. But again, that should be their choice. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Whedon, obviously you work in a field where you're helping people achieve pregnancy. These are highly desired pregnancies, but in some situations, somebody wanted one baby and they got pregnant with two, three, four or more higher order multiples, which Dr. Patel could tell us the risks associated with that. And they're, they're, the list is long. Um, 
Somebody submitted a question asking about selective reduction and what that means for people practicing in your field. Can you kind of explain to people what that means and what's going to happen from here forward with with that? Yeah. Um, you know, as REIs, we, it is one of our huge goals of actually reducing the risk of that happening. That's um, our national organization, uh, ASRM, and has given us guidelines, for example, for a number of embryos to transfer over the last decade or more that has really reduced the risk of higher order multiple pregnancies, even twins from um, IVF specifically. But medications that the road to IVF can sometimes involve for patients, including injection medicines or even Clomid. I mean, everybody listening today has probably heard of Clomid. Um, it holds an 8 to 10% risk of twins um, just taking the medicine or Humara. And so short of IVF, there's risk of multiple pregnancy with my treatments. There's a natural risk of multiple pregnancy too, of course. But especially those pregnancies where it's more than two babies, three or four, for example, which is thankfully not very common anymore, but they are really dangerous. Um, and so, you know, in my career, I have not actually had to have that conversation, but more than a couple of times about whether or not they continue with the number of babies that they have versus uh, selectively reduce or, or identify um, if one is of less likelihood to be genetically normally normal, excuse me, or the one that's the most accessible to reduce the number of fetuses for that pregnancy and such making it a safer gestation, more likelihood for those babies to uh, go to near term or, you know, hopefully not early preterm deliveries. Uh, but even with those, you know, that that technology or the uh, that procedure is not something I can offer here in the state, actually, as it is um, right now. Um, oftentimes, we're having to send our patients, which, again, is a rarity, but out of state. Uh, and no family that's in my office wants to be faced with that decision. I mean, it is the hardest thing, if you can imagine, to have wanted something so badly, but then also know that the risk to her health and the health of the babies is brave enough that we need to consider reducing that pregnancy. Um, not even, you know, some of these bans prohibit me even talking about that. Uh, and so I think it is a really important area to consider might be impacted. Um, people would have to travel again, as we've mentioned here today, nobody wants to travel when they're already having to make these horrific decisions. Um, fortunately we don't face it a lot, but it definitely could be impacted. Dr. Patel, somebody asked a question about uh, if any of these rulings uh, could possibly affect patients who have a baby that dies in utero, like a stillbirth situation, depending on their gestation, or probably more commonly for me, a first trimester missed baby, do you foresee that it would impact a non-living baby in any way? I haven't seen anything come across that has given me any indication that that would be the case. I think what people are concerned about is prosecution for something like that. Could a woman be blamed for the loss of the pregnancy in some way, shape, or form? Or could they go after a physician because a certain medication was prescribed and maybe that had something to do with it? So I haven't seen how it would necessarily impact our ability to treat the patient at that moment. But I think that there is some legitimate fear that um, that those scenarios might be questioned. Well, and in some states, there's literally a reward for turning in a physician that provides banned services. 
Right. So I could foresee, you know, how somebody feels like they just want to be a whistleblower or a pharmacist that doesn't like, you know, prescription for mesoprostol, which is a commonly prescribed medication for, for miscarriage. So these are, these are definitely things to think about. So, um, the next part, and this could be an entire podcast, it probably should honestly, but talking about contraception, um, now with the overturning, we're seeing people in flocks to our clinic, um, wanting contraception, wanting more reliable contraception, wanting permanent contraception. Um, this is obviously an arena I probably play in more than (laughs) the both of you, but, um, as Dr. Patel mentioned, there is contraception failure. So none of these are perfect. And some patients medically, um, are not candidates for all types of contraception, um, and so, um, these are things to consider Dr. Patel, when you were talking earlier about in places that provide free, affordable, available contraception, I remember when I was in training, I believe it was the state of Colorado had a, a grant program that provided, uh, uh, free contraception IUDs, intrauterine devices in particular, um, which are a good form of contraception. They're reliable because they don't, um, require use like remembering to take a pill or change a patch or track a cycle or something like that. And it reduced the teen birth rate and the abortion rate in Colorado, like significantly, like more than 50%. Um, the ones that I want to focus on, like I said, I'll, I'll throw it out there. I'll promise you guys, we'll do a whole podcast on contraception, different types of contraception. Um, but the morning after pill plan B one step or, uh, Ella, which is the other one. Um, Dr. Patel, do you have, uh, you worked with these. Do you want to talk to us about this? Yeah, or? I can talk to uh, I can talk about it a little bit. So, um, Plan B is a medication that um, can be used after unprotected intercourse um, if if there is concern that a pregnancy might occur. So, it can be used in that capacity. It's not an abortion medication. Um, that's something that we call an abortifacient. It is not that type of medication. It's a medication that is going to help prevent. Um, an egg from being released or sperm from meeting that egg or prevent the implantation. More, most commonly, it's going to prevent the ovulation, the egg from leaving at all in the first place. Um, typically, it's going to need to be taken within days after the unprotected intercourse uh, for it to be effective, but it is a good, effective um, birth control method, um, contraceptive method. And again, it is not causing an abortion to occur. So that's a, that's a good option. Um, the best options that you already alluded to are going to be those long-acting reversible contraceptions or something we call LARC. Yeah, so Plan B, which is available over-the-counter, can be bought at a pharmacy. It's basically one and a half milligrams of levonorgestrel, which is the same um, progesterone or progestin that's found in birth control pills. It's just at a higher dose. Um, these are used as backup contraception. So they're not recommended as a primary contraceptive method, but they are available. And I, in my clinical practice, have had a patient who had a barrier method fail, took plan B, and she still was pregnant. You know, like she tried two things and she still had an undesired pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're not abortifacient medications. The other one is called Ella. 
um, which is ulaprystal acetate. That one does require a prescription and it basically blocks the progesterone production from the ovary, which is both of these are basically trying to inhibit ovulation. So if you're close to that ovulation window and you can take these as soon as you can after contraception failure, hopefully within 24 hours, but even up to 72 in some cases, it can help delay ovulation. Um, there is an abortifacient medication though, mifepristone. Dr. Patel, can you tell people what that is for if they live in a state where that type of thing is available? Yeah, it's an anti-progesterone medication. Um, it is a medication that is used oftentimes in combination with mesoprostol to provide a uh, an abortion. And it, we've talked a lot about kind of that first trimester medical abortion that is going to be the safest time frame to be doing it, and it is non-surgical. So that medication, again, in combination with the mesoprostol, is um, oftentimes what is going to be used for a first trimester abortion to happen. Right. And then um, the last form is sterilization. So a vasectomy for a male partner, which is essentially disrupting the vas deferens, which connects the testicles um, to the the rest of the uh, reproductive tract. Um, or in women, there are multiple methods of sterilization. Uh, there are clips. There are, you can burn the tube. You can remove the entire tube. Um, there are rings that you can place on the tube. There's multiple methods, and they actually have different success rates and failure rates. So that is one thing to discuss with your doctor if you go for a consultation for sterilization. Um, but we're seeing now kind of this influx of patients that are interested in permanent birth control, some of which um, have never had pregnancy before. Um, can each of you kind of weigh in on that? Because we're seeing one of the questions people submitted are, you know, at like what age, you know, should people have this done? And, you know, do you guys have thoughts on that? Because it's possible that there could be tubal regret and then you end up in Dr. Whedon's office. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be available. Yeah. No, I think, I think people are legitimately very scared and they know that contraception is not 100%. Even the tubal is not 100%. Um, but I, I think people are very worried and there are people believe it or not, there are people who don't want to have children. Right. I mean, all of us have children and we, we, you know, that was a choice that we made and that was right for us. But some people don't want to have children and they know that early on. Um, so there has been a lot of questions um, about at what point can we offer a sterilization procedure to a patient? Um, and at what point do we think that that's a, a reasonable thing to do? At what age? That kind of thing. Um, and everybody's going to have an individual answer to that. But I think that that's a question that has come up now um, very frequently in a lot of the um, online communities that I'm in from obstetricians and gynecologists. And it's unfortunate that we're in that position that people are having to worry about it to that extent that they would they would opt to potentially have a procedure to keep themselves safe because they know that they're not going to be safe otherwise. Yeah. And as part of our counseling in these situations, we counsel patients that these are meant to be a permanent procedure, procedure not meant to be reversed, even though you've heard of people out there getting a vasectomy reversal or a tubal reversal or having their tubes reimplanted. And this is done in certain situations uh, for patients that that are in that position, depending on 
how many children, you know, they want after they've made that decision for reversal. Um, it is meant to be permanent. There's no guarantee after you have it done that you will be able to restore your fertility, in which case we'd be referred to reproductive endocrinology, like Dr. Whedon, what she does and in vitro fertilization would be your only option in that situation. It's expensive. I mean, it's a cash pay thing for a lot of people and um, you probably don't encounter that too often, but thankfully. More but, often than you'd think, actually. Wow. Yeah. I, um, and that's a whole not, I, I would be happy to talk about a podcast for insurance yeah. coverage for what I do <laughs> uh, anytime. Don't, don't hesitate to ask. But um, it's actually a lot more common than you think. Uh, you know, a lot of our patients that are obviously seeking their primary infertility, meaning they've never been pregnant, are not going to be affected. Well, I shouldn't say are not going to be affected. Some would be, especially as we are seeing, you know, younger population that are at the moment are certain that they don't want children. And, and that is a healthcare decision, much like the other ones we're discussing that really has no um, place for someone other to decide what age or um, limitation should be put upon that. If they can make their own healthcare decisions legally, that seems like one of them that should be able to, but in any case, to your point, um, you know, family dynamics change, um, whether it be, you know, a change in relationship, um, unfortunately, a death in the family after permanent sterilization. Uh, and, and we see those situations actually a lot more often than I think a lot of people would know or anticipate. Some of those situations are really sad. Children that die of a genetic disease, for example, mom had a tubal postpartum. Uh, they didn't know that disease existed. They come see us. Uh, and I'm so grateful to be able to offer, you know, offer care uh, in those scenarios and you know, I don't want anybody to have regret about sterilization, but I'd rather they have regret about sterilization and come see me than have an unwanted pregnancy that they were denied because of a legislation. Yeah. You know, one thing that's come up and one question that somebody submitted was how these laws will affect people of different socioeconomic statuses. And, um, you know, one thing we encounter with sterilization is if a patient has Medicaid, um, there's a waiting period when they decide that we have to sign these papers and we have to wait a certain amount of time. And, um, do you have thoughts on that, Dr. Patel, with just Medicaid, pregnancy care, and how this could change care for those people? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. That could probably be its own podcast, yeah. too. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I think that, I mean, so we know that these bans are going to disproportionately affect people of lower socioeconomic status, people of color, black women in particular. Um, and we're absolutely going to see the consequences of that, um, and further widening of health disparities because of it. I think it's important for the listeners to know that we're already dealing with a maternal mortality crisis in the United States. So just for some points of reference here, um, number one, Black women are three times more likely to die than their white counterparts in pregnancy. Three times more likely. It's unacceptable. Um, and that has a lot to do with access to health care. So that's number one. Um, number two, in the United States, you know, we all think that we are the beacon of health care. And um, the reality is that when it comes to maternal health, we are not. Um, we are three times more likely to have women die in our country than the next industrialized country in the world. So women just in general, all comers, are three times more likely to die here in the United States than in other industrialized countries. 
and again, like, unacceptable. And we and, spend more money. And, we and that's spend pregnancy so related. You're this speaking about it. Yes. This is pregnancy. So we're already in a health crisis. Um, so these bans are absolutely going to affect the um, black community, LGBTQ+, um, people of lower socioeconomic status. They are already um, in a bad place in America, and this is only going to make it worse. Um, I found some interesting statistics um, that looked at maternal mortality as it pertains to states in the U.S. And let me just pull that up so I give you the right numbers here. Um, so the most restrictive states in our country, Louisiana is one of them, have a maternal death rate of 58 per 100,000 births. And that's the highest in America, one of the most restrictive when it comes to abortion laws and um, and access to health care for their um for their citizens of their state, as opposed to California with the lowest maternal mortality rate of four per 100,000. So are those correlated? Like, have they looked at all states? So basically, I just want to make sure I'm hearing what you're saying, mm -hmm. right? And kind of reiterating that for the listeners is that in states where there's the most restrictive bans, mm -hmm. the maternal mortality rate is the highest. Correct. And so, and, and when I say, when we talk about bans, obviously Roe v. Wade was just overturned. So we're talking, I mean, this is not a stat that came out in the last, you know, month. We're talking about states that already had highly restricted access to abortion, um, multiple barriers in place for women to access that care. Um, these are also states that do not provide um access to health care, contraception. Um, you know, I will give an example for here in Nebraska. There was recently a bill that was introduced to expand Medicaid coverage for postpartum care to one year, which is highly advocated across the country. And um, right now, as it stands, it's, it's at about eight weeks of postpartum care that is covered. And um, as a practicing obstetrician, somebody who takes care of pregnant women, there are oftentimes issues that extend far beyond that. Yeah, they show up at 12 weeks with postpartum hypothyroidism, mm -hmm. depression. Yep, depression, high blood pressure. Maybe they can come back for care. contraception. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, that was proposed here in our state, and it was not adopted here. People voted against that. So if we're going to talk about being pro women's health and, and pro-life, let's start at some of these basics and, and work from there. Um, because again, I think the statistics are self-explanatory um, in terms of maternal death rates. Um, I think I, I found that to be alarming. Wow. That's, yeah, that's eye-opening for sure. Maternity leave type mm -hmm. of coverage. Well, just, just women's I health mean, in general. I mean, yeah. even outside of pregnancy care. I mean, when you look at just the disparities of uh, sexual health, contraception, urogynecology. I mean, across the board, there's, there's so many things in women's health that we could, that we could spend a lot of time talking <laughs> about. It's women are not, uh, not taken care of very well in this country. Okay. Any last thoughts from either of you about anything that was, that we didn't touch on? Something you said that I just, I appreciate so much. Um, we're all raised here. 
talk to the people that you love in your life and not a, not about it. It doesn't have to be about abortion. It doesn't have to start there about protecting women's rights here in the state um, and what that means to you. What do you envision for your daughter, your niece, your cousin? What do you want her to be able to, to talk with her doctor about unrestricted? Um, if you start there and kind of see where that conversation grows, you might find that in fact, you want to support the protection of that here. Don't let us get further restricted in Nebraska. Um, but that starts as a conversation around your dinner table. I love the way you mentioned that, Dr. Seaman, at the beginning. Um, social media as a platform for sharing opinions. Um, great in many ways. Pretty damaging in others. Uh, and when it comes to voting day, I mean, we this is where we really have to be intentional with our decisions and who we, um, you know, now we can't go back. Roe v. Wade's overturned. These are now fragmented decisions at the state level. Let's get it right in Nebraska. Um, we got to protect women in our state. So thank yeah, you. This isn't about your political stance. No. I mean, I think if you, and I, I didn't pull the data, but I mean, I think if you survey obstetricians and gynecologists, like, you know, you're going to find pro-life, pro-choice, uh, Matt, my podcast producer and I were talking before this podcast, you know, I, I don't think I would ever choose an elective termination. I've never been in a situation where I've had my water break at 17 weeks. I've never carried a baby with an anomaly. I've never had failed contraception mm. in my life. I've never been in those situations. And, um, you know, as medical providers, we sometimes put ourselves in situations that we would never dream of for ourselves. And these are really, really hard conversations to have. And, you know, you might be for limited government and we're for limiting that in the doctor's yeah, office. Yeah. We, I mean, we, you know, like we were trained, uh, we went to school for a really long time, paid a lot of money to do it. Um, and it's just, it's just really hard, you know, to think that we not be, we may not be able to provide the best medical care possible for our patients. Mm -hmm. I think that's just what I want people to kind of hear. You wouldn't understand. want a legislator in your pap smear exam room, right? Like <laughs> right. I, that doesn't sound cool. No. So, so, um, yeah. but both of you are also involved in some organizations that are trying to raise awareness and do things in our state. Can you just touch on that for the Nebraskans listening? Yeah, we, um, have formed a political action committee and, um, to be clear, <laughs> None of us sought out to be politicians. Um, this is not an area that um, we ever thought we would be dabbling in, um, but this is where we're at. So um, the idea of this is, um, it's called a Campaign for Healthy Nebraska, and the idea is that we are here to educate Nebraskans, so just doing what we're doing today, um, and, and talk about abortion, talk about what it means for patients, talk about scenarios, um, and just educate so that people understand the nuance and people understand what it is that we're doing day to day. And uh, secondarily, we are raising money so that we can help elect candidates in our state who are going to protect reproductive health care for the people of our state. And um, you know, we, we're going to have a lot of educational material up on our website. Um, we are on social media. And um, please follow us and um, listen to some of the news pieces that we have all done, articles that we've put out there. And, and keep an open mind. Um, again, as I think um, you both have said at this point, 
this may not be something that you would choose to do for yourself. Um, and as Dr. Seaman said, I've never been in those positions myself either. Um, but oftentimes when I'm counseling patients, they're saying that exact thing to me. I never thought I would be in this position. And so I just want people to come at it from a standpoint of empathy um, and care for their fellow human and knowing that we're trying to provide the best care that we can for patients and that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. We have, it's, we go from the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in what we do in, in obstetrics and reproductive care. And, and it's good. It's so good. Yeah. When it's yeah. Bad, it's and really we have bad. to come home and face our families and friends and, and, um, you know, we're, we're humans. We're not robots. The government would like to think we live in algorithms and button clicks and things like that, but we're, we're real people. And, uh, both the women at this, this table right here are professional, educated, all the things. And, um, I just thank you both for having this conversation today so that maybe people can just gain insight from, you know, our view, uh, from, from our side of the exam room. So, well, thank you guys for one or wait, save, save IVF Nebraska. Sure, Tell yeah. people about that really so, quick. <clears throat> when, we sign off. when the LB 933 was ultimately not voted um, forward, but we readily kind of recognized around that time frame the risk of um, life at fertilization being the new definition for an abortion ban here uh, and the threat to IVF. We, my partners and I, and my colleagues at Methodist, uh, and I work at Heartland Center for Reproductive Medicine, and my colleagues at Methodist, we banded together to. Um, really gather and, and, and again, help raise awareness, educate about IVF, um, but created a group called Save IVF Nebraska. Um, we are on Facebook primarily, but you can reach us through kind of any of our social media platforms, even call our office. We can help you facilitate um, providing your story. And we grew like quite actually remarkably exponentially very quickly. We, you know, um, went from having just a few of us to start um, to like, 300 on Wednesday before Roe v. Wade was overturned to like 1300 by Sunday. I mean, it's just been incredible um, about how quickly in the pack group two has uh, um, really taken off with regards to the desire to protect, protect reproductive rights in Nebraska with regards to save IVF Nebraska. Um, we are collecting patient stories um, and we appreciate all of the patients that have shared and will share and, you know, it, it's phenomenal. We aren't limiting that to patients that have had IVF, but rather anybody who wants to support the provision and protection of that treatment. If you spend some time there, you will see how many patients in my office, in our practice, have had to see Dr. Patel for high-risk issues, have had to seek termination care elsewhere. Um, it's just really remarkable what everybody envisions as pro-family or pro-life or however you envision this conversation to start. But Save IVF Nebraska was created to collect patient stories, advocate, and educate. We're continuing to do that. We're not going to stop. We're going to fight to protect that. Also, through the PAC, um, my partners and I, Dr. Patel, um, a group of us are really very passionate about protecting uh, reproductive rights here in the state, and that is a phenomenal group that we're working with. We have some great kind of fundraising opportunities upcoming around the state um, within Lincoln and Omaha both this month. Um, plans for further west for those who can't reach us. We have kind of some online options as well, not just to donate, but fundraising options. So um, come find us. Thank you. We'll put Thank this you. all in the show notes too uh, for you guys, how to find Dr. Patel, how to find Dr. Whedon, how to find both those organizations that, that we just talked about. But once again, 
wherever you live, figure out what the laws are, whatever state you're in now, it will make a difference. And, um, with, with some of these legislative bills in Nebraska, time will, time will tell what will happen. But, uh, thank you ladies once again for your time. I know you're both busy moms and doctors, so thank you. Thank you all for listening. And, uh, once again, please leave us your comments and questions and share this with people that you think would find this conversation helpful, um, in any way and, uh, and have conversations with people in your life. Um, talk to your family, talk to your friends, talk to your kids, talk to your OBGYN, um, about these issues. Cause that's what we're here for. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.